That's Dan Liberatore. That's our resident liberation theologian. (laughs) True liberation theology. We're going to go to several passages today. The doctrine of justification is the theme. This is our third time tackling the theme. But I think one verse we'll look at first is Psalm 71. Psalm, the 71st Psalm. We're also going to go to Psalm 98 somewhere during the course of this message, I hope. And then Isaiah 53. So if you don't turn to all those places, at least you can note them and look at them on your own time. 53, especially verse 11, we're going to hit today. I've been using nine theological functional specialties in our study of Romans and brought in the usual is research, interpretation, dialectic. We brought in dialectic in a profound way in Romans because we found out that the first four chapters is Paul in a toe-to-toe fight with an opponent. And I think that's clearly demonstrated. We'll show it again today. And we also use interpretation in which ended up with a translation of Romans. We're still reading that. We'll finish that up on Wednesday. And I guess I'm performing it rather than reading it. And then there is the doctrine of horizons in which we get to see, for example, the horizon of redemption and that we've found that that to be cosmic or even universal, a universal horizon. Now we're hitting a specialty called doctrines from all of this couple of years of study, 160 or so hours corporately together, this doctrine has emerged, the doctrine of justification. To me, it's the most significant doctrine that we could handle today because some significant changes in the perception of what it means to be justified and how we are justified have come about in our study of Romans by the grace of God and in collaboration with some other theologians. So today, the doctrine of justification, part three, And the subject or the title will be called simply the righteous one. The Greek looks like this, ha dikaios, D-I-K-A-I-O-S, ha dikaios. And that's an article, the righteous one, D-I-K-A-I-O-S, the righteous one. And we see this in Romans 117, the key verse in all of Romans And I found out some other things about that verse that I'll be bringing. A lot of it's controversial, but in a good way, because it demands a conversion on the part of those who assume that justification has something to do with a human act or with an individual personal act of faith, when in fact justification of all humankind has to do only solely and completely with the divine act of God in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. And by this, we have to slide in the DMs. And by that, I don't mean direct messaging. I mean the divine missions. And the divine missions are two. God has decided to invade this evil age, and he does so with two divine expeditions. First, sending the Son, then sending the Holy Spirit to effect a universal redemption. So today, the righteous one, in addition to the Dikaio words that we looked at last In the last part, dikaio words, all having to do with righteousness or justification, there's this important term. In fact, this is probably central because it's the central thing that we want to consider in the doctrine of justification. Paul, in Romans 117, the key verse of Romans, quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. And that's significant. There he says... Which means the righteous one will live by faithfulness. The righteous one will live by faithfulness. And it's almost an exact duplication of the Greek text of Habakkuk. You might want to note note these things because this is extraordinarily important doctrine. Habakkuk 2.4b which again says, ha de dikaios ek pistios mu 
Zesatai, which simply is God saying the righteous one will live by my faithfulness. The only thing Paul rules out here in his quote is the word my. So he leaves it simply. He drops the possessive pronoun mu, M-O-U, from the Habakkuk text. So the, the Habakkuk text that Paul quotes as the central thesis verse for the whole epistle of Romans says in Habakkuk 2, 4, and it's the second part, but the righteous one will live by reason of my faithfulness. Paul simply has the righteous one will live by reason of faithfulness because faithfulness is left on its own in Paul's quotation. There is the sense that this righteous one spoken of lives by reason of his own faithfulness. He lives, as we could say, a reward for his own faithfulness or perhaps his own faithfulness in conjunction with God's faithfulness. The question is, who is the righteous one here? Who is this righteous one? Many times in the Reformation times, this righteous one is considered to be the individual who personally believes in Jesus Christ will live by faith. But that's not the case. In Romans 1.17, in fact, from faith to faith is an idiom of speech, which means the righteousness of God is revealed only and exclusively in his faithfulness. And that's an idiom of speech. Only by faithfulness. God's is their justification. We'll be hitting that a little bit harder in future messages, I hope. And so who is the righteous one? Well, the first thing we notice about this one called ha-dikaios is the article, which we would translate usually as the or the. And a singular person is being named here, an individual of extraordinary significance is being mentioned, the righteous one. And this individual is not only named in Habakkuk 2.4 and Romans 1.17, but in Acts 22.14, very important place, because there, when Paul went into the city of Damascus and he went to Straight Street, as it's called, he met a man named Ananias after Paul saw Jesus the Nazarene risen from the dead. On the road to Damascus, Ananias told him what happened. He had to interpret for Paul what happened. In Acts chapter 22, 14, Paul recalls this, and he recalls what Ananias said to Paul after the experience of Paul seeing and hearing Jesus the Nazarene, risen from the dead, the very one he tried to destroy, and all the people of Jesus he tried to destroy. He saw him on the outskirts of Damascus. Ananias said this to him. This again is Acts twenty-two fourteen. The God of our fathers has selected you to know his will and to see the righteous one. Hadikaios, same word, to see the righteous one and to hear the sound of his voice. Paul heard and saw, saw and heard the righteous one. The righteous one is spelled there, ton dikaion, because it's used in the accusative. Sometimes there's a different spelling just because of the case in the Greek. It's the same idea as Habakkuk 2.4 and Romans 1.17. According to Acts 22.14, the righteous one is the one whom God of Israel appointed Paul to see and hear. He's the same one who in Acts 22.8 said to Paul, I am Jesus, the Nazarene. Now, that's almost enough for me to identify the righteous one. I am Jesus, the Nazarene, and God has appointed you, Paul, to, to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear a voice, hear his voice. I am Jesus, the Nazarene, the righteous one. Who is the righteous one? Jesus the Nazarene. That's not enough for some people, though, I find, in presenting this case. It seems that this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, and that's how he introduced himself, who had been crucified and buried 
and who now lives is the righteous one. Well, if he is the righteous one, here's the reasoning, be reasonable, and he lives after having died, then he must live by reason of faithfulness. Not mine, not yours, his own, but his own in connection with God's faithfulness too. So, in fact, it's very interesting given Jesus' own words in John 14.19b, 14, 14, he says, because I live, and this righteous one lives by his own faithfulness, you will live also. Because I live, and the righteous one lives by his own faithfulness, you will live also. Now, I have to ask the question, by what means? By the same faithfulness. You will live also by the faithfulness of the one righteous one, Jesus Christ. This fits into a doctrine of his universally saving significance. If Jesus lives by reason of his faithfulness, then so do we. We think about a lot of things. We reason about a lot of things. We reflect on a lot of things. If you're a Christian, you need to reflect on these things because it profoundly bears upon the message. It profoundly bears upon your own conversions and my conversions. It profoundly bears upon our transformation of our thinking, the way we view others, the way we review ourselves, the way we, re- we view others outside of our periphery, the way we view our enemies. Interestingly, we live because of Jesus' faithfulness. So, and I'm always aware of this, maybe Acts 22.14 is not enough to identify Jesus the Nazarene as the righteous one beyond a shadow of a doubt or beyond, as they say in court, a reasonable doubt. So consider 1 John 2.1, where we are told that we have an advocate with the Father even when we sin. When we sin, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father and he is called Yesun Christon Dikaion, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Now, if I were building a case, I'm not really doing that, but that would ha- add to the certainty that Jesus the Nazarene, the Righteous One, is the Righteous One who lives by reason of faithfulness. And because Jesus the Nazarene lives, we will live also. Certainly not by our faithfulness or by our faith or by our belief, but by his faithfulness. Now, this is going to go further very quickly. If we bring 1 Corinthians 15.22 into the mix, and I hope if you're serious about this, you might be noting these verses. Look them up for yourself. Reflect on these things yourself. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, in Christ, all will be made alive, all of humanity. In the context, that means the same all as the humanity who are called the sons and daughters of Adam, the human race in all of its times. And that's plainly stated. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Christ Jesus lives by reason of his faithfulness, his own faithfulness. Because Jesus lives, we will live too. And we is everyone, all of humanity, in all of time, the whole span of history. For as Romans 5.18 says very clearly, so then, as through one sin, condemnation came to all people, So through the righteous act, that's another dikaio word, the righteous act, dikaioma, of one, who, the righteous one, came the justification of life to all people. On top of all this, it's entirely within Paul's policy to interpret scripture, what we call Christologically or messianically as speaking of Jesus Christ himself. He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If you're going to interpret the Old Testament, 
do so as a testimony of Jesus Christ, him crucified, buried, raised, and exalted. Because that's the whole Old Testament, the testimony of Jesus Christ. He said to the religious people of his own time, leaders, scholars, and theologians, you search the scripture diligently because in them you think you have eternal life. But you do not come to me that you might have that life. He is the one of whom the scriptures testify. Same in Luke 24, 44. So Paul's policy to interpret scriptures in the light of Jesus Christ is in accordance with Jesus' own words in Luke 24, 44. Expounding upon all the scriptures, he said, these testify of me. And he said it humbly. Not only that, this is a method of interpretation that is followed by every person, every preacher, every teacher, every student, every person, every theologian. It is a policy and a method followed by anyone who has had their minds opened by Jesus Christ to understand the scriptures. If he's opened your mind to understand the scriptures in Luke 24, 45, then he's opened your mind to understand those scriptures as a testimony of himself. All the Old Testament, that is. As Revelation 19.10 says, the testimony of Jesus is the very essence of prophecy, the prophetic scriptures. The writings of the prophets, Romans 1.2, all about God's son, all about God's son. So when they speak of a righteous servant or a righteous one in the prophets, you know they're speaking of him. And as Paul said to his opponent, the Torah, the law, the Old Testament, stands tall as a testimony to God's saving righteousness and justice through Jesus Christ's saving faithfulness. That's again Romans 3.31. Justification then, as a doctrine, is nothing short of being made alive in Christ after being identified with him, in fact, Included with him in his crucifixion, death, and burial. This is something that's going to come up soon. Justification is instauration. Justification happens because we were associated with Christ in his death and raised with him, justified. Being crucified, that's positional truth. We call it positional truth as if it's only for believers. Positional truth is for all of humanity. All of humanity in that sense are in Christ. All of humanity, each and every one individually needs to wake up to that fact. That's what the gospel does. It wakes people up to the fact that they are in Christ through instauration. That's another doctrine. It'll go wider and deeper even than our justification doctrine in the future. Being crucified with Christ, therefore, means that we have been justified by God's grace. So we're not done with the key verse in Romans 1.17. It's always a good policy when we read a quotation of Scripture, especially by Paul. He might quote a few words, and you recognize where those words came from in the Old Testament. Best thing to do is look around them, too. The whole verse, sometimes the whole chapter, sometimes the whole book. But in this case, you look back to Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 you find the context. It's always a good policy when you read a quotation or an allusion to a verse in the Old Testament by Paul. Look at the content, the context around that verse that he quoted. Habakkuk 2, 4, and 5 in the Greek text involves a contrast between the righteous one and a boastful man. The contrast, the righteous one versus a boastful man. Perhaps the boastful man is a preacher who teaches that we're justified by the works of the law or that we're justified by confessing Jesus or by baptism or by, in the case of the Jewish Christian missionary, circumcision for the males or for the mothers who circumcise their sons, etc. 
Or perhaps, like the Reformationists, we are justified by a personal human act of believing. Well, I'll just take my stand there and say, I don't think so. I've already taken that stand. Taking that stand assures you of fewer friends in the theological circles. (laughs) Yeah. But I'd rather be the friend of God than the friend of everybody. So much for running for office. Now, Habakkuk 2, 4, and 5 in the Greek text then involves that contrast. In fact, translations that are taken from the Hebrew text, like the New American Standard Bible, translate Habakkuk 2, 4 like this. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous one will live by his faith which should be translated, the righteous one will live by his own faithfulness. This is the righteous one. So the contrast, and this is extremely important for the interpretation of Romans, the contrast between the righteous one and the boastfully proud man actually sets up the whole dialectic of contradictories or the war that goes on between Paul and an opponent that immediately follows Romans 117. Paul's apocalypse that he's presenting, he says the righteousness of God, which means, as we're going to show right in a moment, the saving act of God in Christ is being apocalypsed. That's the apocalypse Paul's interested in, the universally saving act of God in Christ. But right in 118, the proud man comes in, and he wants to talk about an apocalypse of God's wrath upon the heathen. The only way out of that wrath is to get circumcised if you're a male and then follow the Torah, the law. And yes, Jesus died for your sins, but let's leave that fact over here because that's a sideline to it. That's what this other teacher is teaching. So it's interesting here that two apocalypses, if you've heard the word apocalypse in the news or on the movies or watched Apocalypse Now, which is quite a masterpiece of a movie based on Joseph Conrad's novel called Into the Heart of Darkness, you will look at Apocalypse exclusively as something about wrath and destruction and eternal destruction and a final end of the world, or you will see it in sense of something people like to use, Armageddon, and they talk about their raptures and their seven raptures and they're in the sixth seal and all this stuff and they fail to recognize that all that's in the past. We're going to hit that again. So, Paul, his apocalypse is of the saving act of God in Christ, but it's immediately followed by his opponent's announcement of an apocalypse of God's wrath on the heathen. The contrast is between justification by the faithfulness of the righteous one in which we may boast in the Lord and the justification by the works of the law in which a man boasts in himself. The theme of boasting runs throughout most of Romans. In fact, we've seen it already. Romans 2.17, 2.23, 3.27, 5.2, 5.3, and 15.17. So it's pretty widespread. The correct understanding of justification, therefore, results in boasting, celebrating, doing a touchdown dance or whatever you want to call it, only in the righteousness of God. Now let's turn to Psalm 71. I want you to see something here. It's pretty phenomenal. You can see through my eyes on this. Let me put my lenses into your eyes. This is how I see the scripture when I look. I look both at the Greek text called the Septuagint and the Hebrew text called the Masoretic text. And then I look at all the possible good English renditions of it. But this is my translation, Psalm 71. Happens to be Psalm 70 in the Septuagint translation, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. This is what the psalmist writes. I have hoped in you, Lord. That means he puts all his eggs in one basket. Let me never be put to shame. Verse 2. In your 
righteousness. Guess what word that is? Dikaiosune. We already looked at that word. Dikaiosune, the key word in Romans. He says, in your righteousness, do what? Judge me? No. Rescue me. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Now we got righteousness associated with rescue, deliver, save. So it must be that righteousness has something to do with God's saving action, rescuing action, deliverance action. He goes on to say, after verse 2, let's skip down to verse 15, because for economies of time's sake. This same psalm singer, identified as David, says, My mouth will proclaim your righteousness, capital Y-O-U-R, speaking to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, Dikaiosune. My mouth will proclaim your righteousness and your salvation. Back to back, dikaiosune and the word soterion, S-O-T-E-R-I-O-N, soterion, salvation, where we get our word soteriology. That's supposed to be an A there. Soterion or soterion, accent there. So my mouth will proclaim your righteousness and your salvation All day long. That means there's no other alternatives. That's the only message I got. And I can identify with this 1,000%. This is all I got. All day long, I proclaim his righteousness. So, that's it. Verse 16. I will enter in the Lord's dynasty. A word for his dominion or his kingdom. O Lord, I will recall your righteousness. I will recall your righteousness. I'm going to proclaim your righteousness all day long. It's the only message I got. What's Paul doing in Romans? Proclaiming God's righteousness all day long. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because why? It's the apocalypse of God's righteousness all day long. So I will recall your righteousness. And I like this little word at the end of that little announcement alone. I will declare, recall your righteousness alone. What do you mean? Recall it. You tell where it was demonstrated at the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 17, skipping just a little bit. Oh God, you have taught me since I was young. When I read this this week, I said, man, I I could actually say that to God. He started teaching me when I was young. Basically, three weeks after I hit 21, he stepped into my life in a way that is so dramatic, I still feel the reverberations of it. And this is my testimony to him today before all of you and my prayer. Oh, God, you have taught me since I was young, and I still proclaim your wonderful acts. Yeah, there's been a lot of changes, but I've always proclaimed his wonderful acts. That's why to tell us I mean so much. Even now, verse 18 says, even until I am old and advanced in years, way down the line for me, when I'm old and advanced in years, way down the line, Oh, God, do not abandon me until I have proclaimed your arm, your saving power is what he means here, the arm of the Lord, to all the generations that are to come. One other translation says, may the message I proclaim in my day be impacted upon the generation coming up. And I think that's where the main emphasis of this message will fall, although it is in this, it is in this generation too. Now, again, O oh God, do not abandon me until I have proclaimed your arm to all the generations 
to come. Your dominance, which means your kingdom or your dynasty, and your righteousness. So when I looked at this little section, I saw righteousness. Let's do it this way by a diagram. That's R, righteousness. S is salvation. The way it appears is R, R, righteousness, righteousness. In the middle, he's got salvation. Then he's got righteousness and righteousness. And then in seven, in verse 24, he's got righteousness again. So you got righteousness, 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 five times the number for grace. And right in the heart of it, you got salvation, soteria. The message is across, has come across. It's clear. It's God's righteousness. Or if you want to look at it in a linear way, righteousness, arrow, rescue, deliver, save. Righteousness, arrow, salvation. Righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. That's that psalm. It's wonderful. The, the psalm singer continually proclaims, recalls, contemplates God's saving righteousness. He does it openly. He does it publicly. He does it fearlessly. He does it boldlessly. He does it when he's young, and he does it till he's old, and he does it hopefully with a death rattle that comes a moment before he dies. The psalm singer. In these verses, please note there are two uses of dikaiosune on either side of the word soteria. A fifth use of righteousness appears in verse 24 of the same psalm, where the psalm singer says, All day long, my tongue will contemplate your Righteousness. That means reflect upon it, but do it in front of other people, which is exactly what Romans has been for us. In fact, 40 some years has, has been like that here. So, the Lord's righteousness alone is a claim by the preacher who understands the doctrine of justification. That could be a a class in homiletics for future preachers or present preachers. The Lord's righteousness alone is acclaimed by the preacher who understands the doctrine of justification. Moreover, on top of that, God's righteousness is fundamentally united with God's saving, rescuing, and delivering acts. It isn't just a metaphysical attribute that God proclaims. Some attribute of God called righteousness up there in the sky, a metaphysical attribute. It isn't a metaphysical attribute that David proclaims, recalls, and dwells upon. It is God's saving justice, his saving, rescuing, delivering acts, which he has, for example, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's a saving act. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. So David said, blessed is the man, the individual to whom God will not impute sin. Well, how about this? He didn't impute sin to the whole world, so blessed is the whole world. Now, in that sense, you say, but why is the world so screwed up? It's going to get more screwed up. The trends that have hit a new level in our time are going to hit higher levels because the closer we come to the parousia of Christ and the end of this whole mess, the higher the escalation of the confrontation between the righteous one and the boastful man. Paul locates the boastful man not among the heathen in their idolatry, but among the religious in their proclaiming of another gospel. So, and I use that word heathen advisedly. That's a a term used usually by self-righteous preachers. So, there's another psalm, Psalm 98. It's further known. In fact, Psalm 98 is even more important because it has the word soteria for salvation, like Romans 1.16. It has apocalypto, like Romans... 117, Apocalypse, or Stunning Revelation of the Righteousness of God, and it has Dikaiosune, all clumped, clustered together in verse 2 of Psalm 98. Was Paul thinking about that? I think we can fairly say that he's thinking about these psalms while he writes. 
It's Psalm 98.2, followed by verse 3, in which it says that the Lord remembered his mercy and truth to the house of Israel, and that all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation, soterion, of our God. That's Psalm 98 in the English, 97 in the Septuagint. So a new English translation of the Septuagint, which I picked up fairly recently, is excellent. It reads like this. This is the Greek text translated into a modern English translation by some capable scholars. And it reads like this, Psalm 98, 2 and 3. The Lord made known his deliverance. Before the nations, he revealed his righteousness. He remembered his mercy to Jacob. Remember what Paul said, all Israel will be saved, and he takes ungodliness away from Jacob in Romans 11. And his truth to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth saw the deliverance of our God. This psalmist speaks from the other side of history and looks back and says, all the nations saw and experienced his salvation. He sees from the future to the past, to the present. The apocalypse with which Paul is interested then is the apocalypse of the saving righteousness of God. So the apocalypse is coming. The apocalypse has come. It's God's saving righteousness for all the human race in all of its times. That's the apocalypse. And it's now. The apocalypse now. Now, the apocalypse that his opponent is focused on is the apocalypse of God's wrath. Romans 1.18. And it's on those who deserve it. It's on those who deserve it, according to him. Because they did this, God handed them over to this. Because God saw them doing that, he handed them over to that. Because you didn't believe, God hands you over into a furnace where you burn forever unrelentingly in severe pain that could never be relented. He just loves you so much. But he wants to tell you how impotent he is to save you. But if you do wrong... He's going to kick the hell out of you. Well, he already kicked the hell out of everybody. So here it is. Two different apocalypses. Yes, there is an apocalypse of God's wrath. Guess where God vented his wrath on your enemies. Guess who your enemies are? Sin, death, and the hijacked law and the flesh, which is sin's dominance of you from inside. That's who his wrath was vented against. And that's what all the Old Testament references to the enemies of Israel being obliterated. That's what the whole image means in the interpretation of the New Testament. God vented his wrath on our suprahuman enemies in order to save all of humanity. And so... When, the use, when we use apocalypse today popularly, it usually means God's wrath and connected to some distorted idea of Armageddon. This, this little, what I call, silver sliver of scripture encapsulates the entire scope and horizon of the message of Romans with its conflation of apocalypse, God's righteousness, his mercy to the house of Israel, and his salvation being seen or experienced by all the ends of the earth. So this important fragment of the Psalms, as well as Psalm 70, or 71 in your English translation, Psalm 98 in the English translation, along with 71 in English, highlights the revelation of God's saving righteousness and discloses a worldwide horizon. The wrath of God that Psalm 30 and verse 5 says lasts but for a moment, but his mercy lasts forever. Psalm 30 verse 5. That wrath is enacted on the suprahuman enemies of redeemed humans, namely sin, death, and the flesh. So it is striking here how God's righteousness is so integrally involved with his salvation Paul proclaims, recalls, 
and publicly contemplates the saving, rescuing, delivering acts of God in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. And if somebody calls themselves an evangelist, they better do the same thing. Or they aren't preaching good news. Psalm 98, 2 and 3 is especially correlates with Romans 117, the key verse of Romans. Can't stress it enough. That also speaks of the righteousness of God related to his saving power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God for salvation. And it's perceived as such and experienced by, the, by those who believe, whether Jew or non-Jew. Meaning God is the savior of all humankind, as 1 Timothy 4.10 interprets it. But especially those who believe. Those who believe are those portion of humanity that God awakened to faith in this reality. And they therefore experience in some meaningful measure on this side of the coming of Christ. A real experience of righteousness, peace, and joy. The saving action of God in Christ. They actually experience that in some measure in their soul. It's a soul humbling, not a soul. It doesn't make the soul proud. It makes the soul humble. And when we humble ourselves, God elevates us to see horizons that the proud just can't see. The one thing about pride is blinding. It's blind. Pride is blind. And we're going to be teaching on that when we get into our theological. When I get into foundations, well, we might have another exodus, not in, but out of here. Because foundations gets right to the core of your being and requires conversions of our thinking and our acting and our living. So get prepped for that. So how about Isaiah 53, 11? We'll close with that because there's so much more. There's so much more. So God reveals his saving power. That's his righteousness through the faithfulness exclusively of one person alone. The Lord Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God, his saving action, is revealed. And by when it says from faith to faith, that is a terrible translation. That's an idiom of speech that means from faithfulness, and I mean only faithfulness. That's what from faith to faith means. It means God's righteousness, his saving action, is revealed from faithfulness, the faithfulness of a righteous one, and nothing else but faithfulness. That's like John 1.16. We've all received from his fullness grace after grace. That means it's always grace. You can't add, you add anything to it, it's no longer grace. You add works to it, it's no longer grace. It's utterly by grace. Our righteousness, our salvation is utterly and exclusively through the faithfulness of one person. And that's the righteous one, Jesus Christ. So, why is this offensive to people? Because in their pride, they want to boast. I used to be this, but now I'm this because I did this. I made this decision. I made that decision. And when you give up stuff based on your own strength, it comes back with a vengeance. Now, but when God takes it away, it's gone. So then, how about Isaiah 53, 11? If you're not convinced yet, the word dikaios is used again here as a descriptive of a single individual, dikaios. And it's back-to-back, literally, with the word dikaio, which means to justify. So we have the righteous one and justified literally back to back in the Greek text. That's how I see it when my eyes read the scripture in the Greek. So in Isaiah 53, 11, Dikaios describing God's righteous one whom he calls my servant. There's one called the righteous one whom God calls my servant. The closest text to the New Testament, therefore, is Isaiah 40, verse 1 through 55. 40 through 55. It's called Deutero-Isaiah, the second Isaiah. And in 53, we have the climactic death 
which he takes away the sins of the world. He's called my servant. That word, dikaios, is back-to-back with dikaio. You'll see this in print when we print it out. For justify appears literally back-to-back. The Septuagint pictures Yahweh justifying the just one. It pictures the God of Israel justifying a just one or the righteous one. The scripture translates this way, the Septuagint translation. Let me read it to you because the sense from the Greek is different from most English translations. It says, and the Lord wishes to take away from the pain of his soul. That's the righteous one, his, the pain of his soul. To show him light, that's resurrection, and fill him with understanding. And then in the middle of that, there's a note which means, or shall come or shall cause many to inherit. In other words, the idea is through the pain that he endures in this suffering on the cross, this Messiah, this righteous one, will cause many to inherit him as their inheritance, to inherit him with understanding. And then it says, to justify a righteous one. Dikaio, dikaios. To justify a righteous one who is well subject to many. And he himself shall bear their sins. It sounds like a strange thing, but it's poetry. This is the sense of Romans 1.17, 3.26, and 6.7, along with 1 Timothy 3.16, where we looked already, where Jesus is identified clearly as the righteous one whom God justifies on the basis of Jesus' own faithfulness, which is also known as his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. He obeyed the Father's will to save all of humankind. However, as Romans 5.18 clearly teaches, the righteous act of Jesus, the righteous one, brings the justification of life to all of humanity. Nowhere in all the debates of what justification is have I seen these truths highlighted. It's always a debate about whether it's the faithfulness of Christ or the faith of the individual. We know it's the faithfulness of Christ. But then it becomes a, a whole thing as to whether that is a just, we're justified by some human action or some divine action. And there's never a universal angle to this, which is clearly in Paul, where all are justified by one action of one righteous person. The the all that are justified are all the children of Adam, which in Psalm 14.2 and 53.2, quoted in Romans 3.10-12, God surveyed the whole human race in all of its times and said, among them all, there's none good, there's none righteous, there's nobody at all, not even one who can get themselves out of that fix. So the one righteous did it. The faithfulness of one righteous saved all the children of Adam, which is all the human race in all of its times through all of history, past, present, and our future. To me, that's good news. There's nothing in it that makes me ashamed to preach it. I used to be ashamed to preach the gospel because I got uh, so far, and then I said, but if you don't believe, you're going to hell. That's not too good news. I actually taught that to a kid who was on LSD one time. And he said, oh, that's great. And then I talked about hell, and he goes, man, I think I'm having a bummer. (laughs) Well, the poor kid would have had a much better trip if he heard my gospel today. But he was tripping. He tripped over the tripping stone. I think about that kid often now. He was hitchhiking. We picked him up hitchhiking. And I feel bad because I dropped him off right in the middle of a bummer. But... Trust God, he's, he's probably a preacher now, preaching the gospel of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, I love this passage because in Isaiah fifty three eleven we can conclude that when Jesus the righteous one was justified for his faithfulness and lived by resurrection, by reason of his faithfulness, so did all of humanity and in him, And by him, all humanity receives the justification of life. Because of the translation of Isaiah 53, 11 of the Hebrew text, the Hebrew text says this, and you say they look different. No, they both 
need to blend. They're both good. Or as one person said, both is good. In this case, both is good. The Hebrew text says, my righteous servant makes the many righteous. Well, what does many mean? That's also correct in its message. The many, of course, means all of humanity in all of its times, as is clear from the interchangeability of the terms many and all. When Paul says many, he means all. Romans 5, 18 to 19. And when Jesus said in Mark ten forty five, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve. There's the servant, the righteous servant. He's telling his disciples what to be like. Don't be like the politicians of our time, the Romans. The Caesar has to ride into town and be adulated and ministered to and served. But I'm the son of man, and even I came to serve and to offer my life as a ransom for many. And when he, met, when he said many, 1 Timothy 2.6 says he meant all. He gave his life as a ransom for all. So Mark 10.25, or 45 rather, paralleled with Matthew 20.28, 20, paralleled with 1 Timothy 2.6, he gave his life as a ransom for all. Now the words that Jesus used in Matthew 20.28, 20, in which he understood his death to be the ransom of many. He repeated it in the Last Supper. This is the blood of the covenant, my blood of the covenant, and this is my body for the ransom of many, for the redemption of many, the all of the human race. He understood his death, and this speaks well for both the Tanakh or the Hebrew and the Septuagint translations. The Tanakh emphasizes the justification of the many, while the Septuagint stresses the justification of the righteous servant. Both have, each has a different accent, but they both come together in a stunning revelation that when God justified the one righteous servant, he justified the many. Because by the suffering of the righteous servant, the many were justified. But again, many equals all. Both in Mark and Matthew, Jesus says that the one who is greatest of all must be the servant or the slave of all. And he made that very clear in Matthew, in both Matthew and Mark. So the Septuagint stresses the justification of the righteous servant. The Hebrew stresses the justification of the many based on his justification. The Septuagint describes God's righteous servant as, quote, being well subject to many. He makes himself subject to many. And this agrees with what Jesus said, the son of man is the servant or the slave of all. Becoming a man, he became a slave, and as a slave, he became obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion. In Philippians 2.8, therefore God has also highly exalted him, given him a name above every other name, so that at the very mention of the name Yeshua, Jesus, every knee will genuflect, every tongue will acknowledge that Yahweh is Yeshua, Jesus, to the glory of God the Father. Now, if that's not universal, I don't know what is. And I don't know what your argument is against it, but it's stupid. I'm just kidding. Well, sort of. (laughs) When you pay your dues on this thing, you have the right to be a little facetious once in a great while. But So there's no controversy, and I will close with this. I got about 90 more paragraphs. I'm going to reduce it down to one or two sentences. There is no controversy in my mind, and I have to take a stand here on my own two feet. There's no controversy between the Hebrew and the Greek translations of Isaiah 53, 11. One highlights the justification of the righteous one, which is testified to in Romans and elsewhere. The other highlights the justification of many, which equals all, through his suffering and through his entry into glory. Consider again the translation of the Greek text offered by a man named Moesis or Moses Silva of Isaiah 53, 11. And the Lord wishes to take away from the pain of his soul to show him light and fill him with understanding to justify a righteous one who is well subject to many 
and he himself shall bear their sins. Or Duran's translation in Theology and the Dialectics of History, his soul's anguish over the suffering of Christ on the cross, he shall see the light resurrection and be content. By his sufferings shall my servant justify many taking their faults on himself. Finally, consider verses in Romans that spring from the understanding of this verse and from the Psalms that we just read. And you can close your notebooks if you want. I'm just going to read these and close. Romans 1.16, for I, my translation is all these, in all these. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, this very good news, because it is experienced as the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I say not ashamed, because by it, the righteousness of God, his saving act in Christ and in the Spirit, is apocalyptically and exclusively revealed from God's faithfulness in Christ Jesus to Christ's faithfulness, in which we who believe have the privilege to participate. Just as it is written, the righteous one, Jesus, and all of humanity in him will live from or because of faithfulness. That is Christ's own faithful obedience to the death of the cross. Romans 3.21 through 26 reads this way. Paul says, but now apart from the commandments of the law, the saving righteousness of God has been manifested, being fully attested by both the law and the prophets. That is, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ revealed to all who have faith. For there is no distinction. It makes no difference whether one is a Jew or a Gentile. For all sin, all are under the power of sin and complicit with it and fall hopelessly short of the glory of God in themselves. And all are justified unconditionally by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as the mercy seat through the faithfulness that climaxed with his blood, Christ's sacrificial death, for the demonstration of God's righteousness. God, I say, who passed over the sins that were previously committed by his forbearing, forbearing patience. Yes, I said, for a demonstration of his saving righteousness and justice in the present time of crisis, the juncture of two ages, to show that he is perfectly just and the justifier of that one, that righteous one, by means of faithfulness, namely Jesus. Romans 4.25, he, Jesus, was handed over for the offenses, that is to take them away and resurrected for our justification. Romans 5.15 through 18 through 19 make that. However, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, then how much more have the grace of God and the gift overflowed to enrich the many, that is with life, by the grace, that is the faithful obedience to the extent of death of the one man, Jesus Christ. It overflowed and superabounded even more to the many. The unconditional gift is all out of proportion to the one man's sin. On the one hand, one sin brought judgment resulting in the universal sentence of condemnation. But on the other hand, the gift coming after many trespasses brought USA, as Dave called it, the universal sentence of acquittal. USA, 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 universal sentence of acquittal. How do you like that one? Chant it. Now, 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 wait, wait, we're not done. Wait, oh, verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life with death dethroned through the one Jesus Christ, the one Jesus Christ, the one Jesus Christ, the one righteous one. Verse 18, so then as through one sin came condemnation to all people. Huh. 
So through the righteous act of one, the one righteous one, came the justification of life to all people. I'm doing that to save my voice. So just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, many were constituted as sinners, many meaning all, so through the obedience of the one, the righteous one, the many, were constituted as righteous. Hmm. Romans 6, for the one who died, that is Jesus, and with him all of humanity and all of time, for when one died, all died, he was liberated. Literally, Jesus was justified from the control of sin. Now, having died with Christ, we believe that we will live with him, even now, but in bodily resurrection completely. So I am going to finish it. The righteous one lives by reason of his faithfulness. Jesus, the righteous one, was justified, and his justification consists of life from the dead we died with him we being the human race second corinthians five fourteen. if one died for all then all died and we will live with him because we participate in his justification and in his life from the dead that's why he's called the second man the final adam and by we i mean all the many whom the righteous one's suffering, death and resurrection, justifies. Justification is a saving act of God. It is the matter of God's righteousness alone, which all the human race actually becomes. We become the righteousness of God through him, by the righteous one who became sin for us. The righteous one alone. Namely, Jesus. Amen. USA, USA, US. Join in, Keith. He's going to be singing. US, no, never mind. See, some of you, Wednesday, we're going to finish off Romans, the translation, the ultimate interpretation.